Our scripture from today is John 15, 26 through 27, and then John 16, 5 through 15. When the counselor comes, the one I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. You, will, you also will testify because you have been with me from the beginning. But now I'm going away to him who sent me, and not one of you asked me, where are you going? Yet because I have spoken these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I'm telling you the truth. It is for your benefit that I go away, because if I don't go away, the counselor will not come to you. If I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment. About sin, because they do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I'm going to the Father and you will no longer see me. And about judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. I still have many things to tell you, but you can't bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own, but he will speak whatever he hears. He will also declare to you what is to come. He will glorify me because he will take from what is mine and declare it to you. Everything the Father has is mine. This is why I told you that he takes from what is mine and will declare it to you. This is the word of God. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Joel McCarty, um, and I have the joy of serving as one of the pastors here at New Eden Church. Uh, specifically, I get to oversee kind of the preaching ministry uh, of New Eden and some of the vision and stuff. And honestly, I'm just grateful to be a part of what God's doing here in our midst. Um, if you're visiting with us, I especially want to welcome you to this gathering. I know it can be awkward stepping into a new place. So uh, we just hope that you experience the glory and the love and the majesty of Jesus uh, while you're here, both not only in word and what we say, but also in deed, which means what we do, our actions. And so if we can serve you in any way, uh, please let me know. I mean that. I'd love to meet you at some point afterwards. So as Josh mentioned a couple minutes ago, there are some opportunities uh, coming up soon with uh, some of our church partners, um, and we're excited to be able to offer things like the Kids Day Camp and the Student Camp through partnership with Summit Crossing. Um, as a young church plant, uh, partnerships like that provide us the opportunity uh, to offer discipleship opportunities. And so we're just grateful to be able to partner with people like that. Um, we take advantage of that. One of those partnerships we have is with uh, a sister church, Worthy Redeemer, which is in Huntsville. Uh, some of you came yesterday to the conference they hosted called Black History is Church History. And I know many of you were able to join us. It was cool to look out and see many of your faces there. Um, I was encouraged by that. We were just all growing and learning and engaging together. Um, I couldn't help but look out at the faces from New Eden there and just think, what a crew. They make fun of me because apparently I say that a lot. <clears throat> uh, but, you know, when I see people I really enjoy, I'm just like, oh, what a crew. So that's what I thought yesterday when I saw many of you there. I was like, what a crew. It was just exciting. Um, I had the honor of speaking for one of the sessions, and I spoke about this black Christian woman from the 1800s named Sojourner Truth. I won't retell her life's story, uh, but it was very interesting for me studying her life recently and then also studying for this sermon and how it weaved itself together. Um, if you don't know about Sojourner, uh, she was born in 1797 as a slave in New York. She was eventually uh, freed and she grew to become a great orator, this activist and abolitionist. She was an advocate for both slaves and women's rights and she was a strong Christian. Her story 
is quite amazing. Uh, if you weren't able to be there, uh, the sessions will be posted online and I encourage you to go listen uh, to her story, but also the other sessions, there was a lot of knowledge that was just being dropped. It was encouraging. But two of the resounding themes in the life of Sojourner Truth that I noticed and stuck out to me were, one, her awareness of God's work in her life. She was very aware of God's presence in her life. And the other thing was her pursuit of truth. You don't have to read about her long to realize that she believed that God was active and real and at work in her life and the things around her. And this led her to a pursuit of truth, not only personally in her own life, but also in the world around her, the the social public sphere. And I thought it was very interesting because I'm not sure if it's just our American context or what, but often these ideas of truth and the Holy Spirit's work have kind of been shown to be opposed to each other. Uh, This false dichotomy that are pitted against each other in our context. On one side, you might have people who sensationalize the work of the spirit and maybe make him out to be nothing more than a genie whose job it is to provide us health, wealth, and happiness, however we might define those things. And the spirit is kind of just this ethereal substance that is totally distant and distracted from real everyday stuff of life. And then on the other side, you might have people who talk about truth as if it's something that can just simply be arrived at by enough intellectual study, totally apart from the work of the Spirit. And the whole goal of truth is simply obtaining more knowledge so then I can transfer that knowledge to other people or win the next argument, whatever that might be. But in the life of Sojourner, you don't see this false dichotomy. And even more important than her life in the scriptures, we never see this false dichotomy. In fact, I would go so far to claim that if you say you have the spirit of God, but you don't have truth, you don't have the spirit. You might have a spirit, uh, but not the spirit of God, which is why we're told in John, same author of our book today, he tells us to try the spirits that are among us to make sure they are of God. But also if you claim to have truth, but you don't have the spirit of God. Your life does not bear the fruit of the spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, long-suffering, gentleness. You're just angry all the time, walking around correcting everybody because you've got it figured out. Then I would argue that you don't actually have the truth of God. Earlier in John, we've already seen that those who worship God do so in both spirit and truth. And both are necessary for true worshipers of God. So if anything, these things should not only not be pitted against each other, they should also never be separated, as I feel like is often the case. So as Josh mentioned earlier, we typically preach through books of the Bible here at New Eden, and we're in the Gospel of John. We're kind of nearing the end slowly but surely. Um, Today, we're in John chapter 15, verse 26 and 27, and then we're skipping to uh, John 16, 5 through 15. We talked about verses 1 through 4 in last week's sermon, so we're uh, skipping over those because we already covered them. Uh, I invite you to follow along with us however you're most comfortable. It can be on your phone or with your physical copy of the Bible. We'll also have the text on the screen for you as well. So just a reminder that we're getting to hear some of the last words from Jesus, and we're taking our time walking through this, but this was the last conversation Jesus was having with his disciples before he would be betrayed and then go to the cross to die. So what he has to say is pretty important. 
And Jesus wants to make sure that his disciples, I was like, what is the big point of this text? Like, it's simply that his disciples would know that they are not alone when he leaves. And our text today contains what is probably, I think, Jesus's most explicit teaching on the Holy Spirit to his disciples. In our passage, Jesus refers to the Spirit as the Spirit of truth. And that's what I want us to zoom in and look at during our time together today. So let's start by looking at the first idea about the Holy Spirit that we'll learn from our text, which is the gift of the Spirit to us. The gift of the Spirit to us. So let's look at verses five to seven again and see what Jesus has to say to his disciples about the gift of the Holy Spirit once he is gone. He says, but now I am going away to him who sent me. And not one of you asks me, where are you going? Yet because I have spoken these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I am telling you the truth. It is for your benefit that I go away because if I don't go away, the counselor will not come to you. If I go, I will send him to you. So if you remember, if you've been following us through John, Jesus has said multiple times, hey, I'm leaving soon. And his disciples are still struggling to understand what that's about. They've been confused. They're thinking purely in an earthly sense. Like, okay, where are you headed? Just like I've said, hey, I'm leaving. My kids are like, okay, what's, where are you going, right? Jesus is thinking big picture, He's thinking cross, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension back to his father, but they're confused. He says in verse five that none of them ask me, none of you ask me where I'm going. Now, if you've been paying attention, that doesn't seem true at first glance. Uh, you might remember back in chapter 13, Peter specifically said, Jesus, where are you going? And later in chapter 14, Thomas kind of alluded to that as well. But let's look at the context. The thing that Jesus says right after, none of you have asked me where I am going, is that you guys don't need to be sorrowful because this was the plan of the father. He's told them this already. You don't have to grieve. And so what he's getting at when he says, none of you have really asked me where I'm going, is that none of them have actually been concerned with the work that he's doing in the world. Their primary concern is not God's glory and this work, but how it's affecting me, how it's going to affect my life. Peter and Thomas's previous inquiries were not about trying to follow God, follow Jesus and surrender to God's will. will. In fact, they want to stop it from happening. We'll see it later with Peter trying to cut off the sword. Like they don't want Jesus to go away. They really don't want to know what he's up to in the world. So to illustrate this, imagine that you had a surgeon and he had a family and he made a promise to his kids that, hey, when I'm home from work today, we're going to all go to the park and hang out. And so the surgeon gets home from work and his young kids are there excited about going to the park and he gets a call and there's an emergency surgery that he has to leave and disappoint his kids and go back to the hospital to perform this emergency surgery. The young children not understanding the situation might ask, where are you going? That might be their response, but from their perspective, and they're not really trying to understand, hey, where are you going? Their brains can't comprehend that. Their primary concern when they say, where are you going is, how is this affecting me? I was planning on going to the park and now I can't go because you're going somewhere else. They're not really concerned with where their dad is going. 
And this was the tone of the disciples. And I believe this is why Jesus says, none of you have really asked me, like really want to know where I'm going. And it might be because they're not ready to handle that truth, as we'll see in a minute. They're sorrowful because they just don't want Jesus to leave. And can you really blame them? I mean, think about it. These guys have walked with Jesus for three years. They've watched him raise the dead. They've watched him heal the sick. They've watched him turn water into wine. They've partied with him. They've wept with him. They've watched him speak to crowds. And then he's pulled them aside to give them the meaning of what he was saying. They know this man intimately by now. I mean, face to face, they're walking with the son of God, which is why it's absolutely crazy what Jesus says next. He tells them that it's actually for your good that I leave because it means that the comforter, the spirit of truth, the counselor will be gifted to you. And if we really try to think about this, it's absolutely hard for us to fathom that the spirit of God in the disciples was more beneficial for them than Jesus among them and beside them. How often do we not think how cool it would have been to to walk and talk with Jesus, to see him? And that desire is not a bad one at all. One day that desire is going to be fulfilled. But in this passage, we see from the mouth of Jesus that the gift of the spirit to us is actually more beneficial for us than having the physical presence of Jesus, which is crazy. I don't even want to believe it. But if it's true, it might change the way we think about the spirit. Now we can talk about all the reasons why Jesus might've said this, but let's not move so quickly to explain this truth that we don't sit in the gravity of it. I mean, this is amazing and it should cause us to sit in awe that we have access to the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. The same spirit that Jesus perfectly walked in as he lived on earth. And the scriptures make it plain that this promise was not just for his disciples he's talking to, but also all who follow after him. The spirit of truth is for everyone who receives the work of Jesus by faith through grace alone. We receive this counselor, this spirit of truth, simply as a gift proceeding from the father at the request of the son. And this gift to us is a part of God's plan for his work in the world. It is our benefit for our good that Jesus in flesh is no longer with us because we have the spirit if we trust his plan. Jesus in flesh was not with his disciples 24-7. He got away, he got alone. There were times where he was not with them. But because of the work of Christ, the spirit of Jesus would be with his disciples at all times in any circumstance, 24-7 after the cross and resurrection. And this is still true today. And this is the thing about the spirit. When he does his work, when we receive that gift, it actually transforms us. The spirit is not something you're just given for no reason. It's not just this kind of nice idea that you kind of always got someone with you. You know, like we we think about maybe our ancestors that they're always looking down upon us. There's so much more here. 
This has a glorious global purpose because the spirit of truth is on a mission and by God's grace, you get to play a part in that mission. We saw the gift of the spirit to us and now we see the mission of the spirit through us. The mission of the spirit through us. Let's look back at chapter 15, verses 26 through 27. When Jesus introduces this idea, he says, when the counselor comes, the one I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will testify about me. You also will testify because you have been with me from the beginning. There is this missional nature to this gift of the spirit. This gift of the spirit along with all followers of Jesus serve a purpose and that purpose is to bear witness, to give testimony, to testify to the world about the work of Jesus. And this missional work of the spirit should not be surprising for us. Ever since the fall, God has been on a mission to redeem to himself a people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And the spirit in union with the rest of the Trinity is simply proceeding from the father and continuing the work that the son has made possible through his life, death, burial, and resurrection. And one of the primary ways that the spirit bears witness to the world or testifies is through the church, through his covenant people. I mean, it was this way in the beginning with Abraham when he was called out and he was told underneath the old covenant that Abraham was blessed. Why? To be a blessing. And that through Israel, all nations of the world might be blessed. And so they were supposed to be a light and bring other nations into the good rule and reign of God. And under the new covenant, that role is given to the church. We are the priesthood of God, as Peter calls us, called out to bear witness to the world in both word and deed with our lives and our lips. We declare the hope of Jesus. So a big piece of the way this works from the spirit is called conviction. Look at verse eight. It says, when he comes, when the spirit comes, he will convict the world about three things, sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now, convict is a word that has been made into like Christianese, right? We use it a lot. So when that happens, sometimes we lose the meaning of the word. Like think about it simply, the word convict has the connotation of convincing one of the truth. We tend to see conviction as a negative thing, but the reality is if we're truth pursuers, we want truth to be proclaimed, even if it's uncomfortable for us. Conviction is simply the Holy Spirit exposing what is already true and by his grace, convincing one that it is so. And this is what the Spirit does in the world. This is how we came to faith. We are told that he will convict or convince the world of three things, sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now you could read commentators for a while on what all these three things mean. Uh, There are some slight disagreements, but I think the big ideas are pretty clear. In verse nine, Jesus says that the spirit will convict the world about sin because they don't believe in him. John has already told us the whole reason he wrote his gospel is why? So that people might believe. Jesus has told us already the primary work for us to do, do you wanna know the work that you're called to is to simply believe. 
It's not a long list of regulations and rules. The work is to believe. And so it's no surprise that the root sin that the spirit cares about is the sin of unbelief. All sins at their core are unbelief. When we live contrary to the way that God has called us to, it reveals that we actually, if we're honest, no matter what we say with our lips, what we believe in our hearts is that our way is best and that our way can accomplish righteousness. And to put it bluntly, that's a lie. And the Spirit, by His grace, convicts us, convinces us of that unbelief so we can then turn and repent and turn to Him. And He uses the church to do so. That's why we have to be honest about our hopelessness apart from Christ. That our only hope to come to the Father is by faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus. We can't just give this list of rules and tell people that they can earn it if they just measure up and do enough. It doesn't work that way. He goes on to say in verse 10 that the spirit will convict the world of righteousness because he's going away to the father and they won't see him. This is one of the more confusing statements that people kind of uh, have different opinions about. There's different thoughts about what it means. I don't think we need to overthink it. Um, Pretty simply, while Jesus was on earth teaching, He was revealing what true righteousness and holiness was, not only with his life, but with his words. He showed that true righteousness was not the self-reliance and pharisaical rule following that the religious elite said it was. That's why he's flipping tables in the temple. Like, this is not the way. This is not what righteousness is. True righteousness is only found in Christ. And once the physical presence of Jesus is gone in the world, he's no longer there by his teaching to expose this fake pseudo-righteousness that exists. And so that job will now move to the Holy Spirit, doing that through his church. It's why the way we live matters so the world can see a beautiful picture of wholeness. Now, the word holiness, we don't really like, and it has been twisted, but it simply means set apart for the purposes of God. And it has this idea of, of being right, of being whole, of being fully who you were created to be. And so we live in a way that God has called us to, not to earn favor with God, but so that others may look upon the church see our communities and see true righteousness and holiness motivated not by guilt and shame, but by love of God and love of others. And the world sees that and is convinced of true righteousness, which is only found in Christ. And then in verse 11, he says, the spirit will convince the world of judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. I love how he talks about this as in past tense because the work of Jesus is as good as done. In the cross and resurrection, the prince of the power of this air will be beaten and exposed as a farce. And the spirit reveals this truth to the world. Judgment is another word we we don't, has been twisted sometimes and we don't love it in our context. Simply discerning the truth, like revealing the enemy to be who he is, which is our enemy. And so we, we can then by the power of the spirit turn from darkness to light. And one of the witnesses to the power of the gospel is us living in freedom from sin as the spirit grants us that. And the spirit gives us healing. And when the world sees that the enemy has no power over us, 
By God's grace, they are convinced of the truth about Jesus and his powerful work. And so the spirit of truth through his church and in the world is convicting of truth so that they might repent of their sin and unbelief. Believe in the good news of Jesus and receive the spirit for themselves. Like this is the big global work that the spirit is continuing that Jesus started. We see it at Pentecost, right? When the spirit falls on the church and the gospel spreads and people from everywhere start believing the gospel. And we're, we're the beneficiaries of that years later. And to this day, the spirit is at work in the world through the church. But here's the thing. It is huge, it is big, it is cosmic, but it's not just big picture stuff because God not only cares about his mission, he also deeply cares about you. You're not just some tool in his plan, though it's amazing that we get to be a piece of it, but he also intimately cares about you. We saw the gift of the spirit to us, the mission of the spirit through us. And lastly, we see the transforming work of the spirit in us. The transforming work of the spirit in us. Look at verses 12 and 13. He says, I still have many things to tell you, but you can't bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own, but he will speak whatever he hears. He will also declare to you what is to come. In this statement, we see that Jesus and the Holy Spirit, they care not only about the mission in the world, but deeply about the followers of Jesus. I love verse 12 because Jesus just meets people where they are. I mean, he's been with these guys for three years and there's still stuff they're not ready to hear. He's like, it's okay. Like the spirit's gonna deal with this. We're all right. Like he's not freaking out. He's not worried that they didn't get it soon enough. He's so patient with us. He has things to teach us, but like any good loving parent, he only gives us what we can handle. Any of you that have tried to explain stuff to kids understand this. Sometimes like there's just literally, they ask you questions that there's literally no way you can explain because they don't have the maturity or mental capacity to understand. You're just like, they're like, what does this word mean? I'm like, I don't know. The word just means what it is. How do I define that word? It just is. I don't know. You just can't define it by what it's not. That's for sure. Sorry, that was an inside joke over here. Someone told me that the other day and we got in an argument. Totally random. All right. So <laughs> this is why I stayed in my notes right here. That's why I don't do that. So what do you do, right? You tell them the little bit they can handle until they're mature enough to handle more. And then you give them that knowledge as you can. And this is how the spirit is at work through us. Jesus says the spirit of truth will guide us into all the truth. And I just think that's a beautiful way to say that. I mean, he could have just said he'll tell us or declare it to us or whatever. Like this is so much more intimate. He guides us, taking us by the hand, day by day, moment by moment, as our frail minds can handle and gently reveals to us what we can bear, leading us to the truth, knowing what we need to know, when we need to know it, no more, no less. When we fight that, it gets uncomfortable. Like if we just learn like the psalmist, and I'm still trying to learn this, who says, I don't have to concern myself with things too marvelous or wonderful for me. 
but I've just become like a weaned child at his mother's breast, content because we've learned to trust God. Like there's so much comfort for me in this promise. Personally, first of all, because I know that by the promise, based on what Jesus said, the spirit is guiding me. I don't have to fret and worry. Yeah, I can ask for understanding. I can cry out like the psalmist, show me, what are you doing? You're gonna show up, God? What's going on in the world? I can make space to listen, but I do not have to be all-knowing. I do not have to understand everything. I can simply just take that next step of faithfulness and obedience. Trust him with it. He'll give me the truth when I can bear it. And it's also comforting for me with others. And I love this because believe it or not, we have a hard time believing this, but the same spirit that lives in you also lives in other Christians. And he is just at work in their life as he is in yours. And so the pressure is off of me. I can speak truth when I am called to it, but I don't have to try to change hearts. I can't do that. And someone else's journey toward truth that the spirit is leading them to might look different than mine. It might be a different book that drives that point home than the one that I wanna always recommend, right? I'm only one recommending books. But our journeys look different. And this is an area where I think the church can use a lot of growth in. We expect people to figure it out in the same way, the same manner, the same timing that we have. And sometimes I think maybe we're speaking things that they're not ready to bear. We're trying to move into the role of the spirit in their lives instead of trusting God. They already have the spirit of God. They don't need you too, right? And we need community. Like the spirit uses each other to speak into this. But here's the thing, like the spirit will take care of his. And if you don't think so, like think about the things you thought 10 years ago that are crazy. You're like, wow, the spirit showed me that one. Praise God for that, right? And there's things that you think now that are crazy and you'll realize in 10 years that you were wrong and I will too. That's why, you know, our primary role like Kevin talks about this, like the story of the, the men who just pick up the, the corners of the blanket and take the man to Jesus and say, here, you deal with it. Too much for us to handle. Like, That's all we're doing. Here you go, Jesus. Here you go, Spirit. Your work, not mine. What do you have to say? And I love it because the Spirit is patient and loving with us, but he also doesn't mince words. I mean, you guys have been there where the Spirit just smacks you upside the face. You're like, dang, that was hard to hear. Yeah. But it's true. He tells us the truth. He doesn't just say stuff to make us feel good. He leads us to transformation as we can handle it. And he speaks truth to us through the spirit in the here and now. Now the truth of the scriptures and the truth of the spirit of God are never at odds with each other. Right in verse 13, we see that unity with the spirit and the father and the son and everything that he said that he's revealed to us in his scriptures. Like we will, it will never conflict with that. But the spirit guides us into all truth by teaching it to us in ways that we can understand. And I love it because it's actually one of the biggest roles of the spirit is like, like I can tell you a truth in the scriptures. I can beat it over your head all day. Like I can tell you to memorize it as a kid, but it takes the very spirit of God to take this from words, black and white words on a page to sink down into my bones where I actually believe it to the point that it changes me. I can't, you can't do that. I can't recite it enough. It's not an incantation that if you say it enough, it'll do some magic thing. Nothing wrong with learning scripture. Like we should engage with the text, but we need the spirit of God. It's an absolute necessity 
Like, I think sometimes we treat the Holy Spirit like this little power up. You know, if the Christian life was a game, like I play this game called Words with Friends. It's like Scrabble. And I'm playing these couple people, Luke and Ashley Whaley, that are like coming up with these words that I'm like, there is no way you did that on your own. Like there's some cheat you're using. That's not even a word nobody would ever think of. What is going on, right? And so I have my suspicions. Uh, Maybe I'm just bad at the game. That's probably really what it is. But here's the thing. In the game, there's these bonus things. You can watch these ads or buy these little bonus things that'll tell you how, how, you know, what the options are for your word count, all this stuff, you know, how many points you could earn. So, you know, if you're playing a crappy word and you just feel really bad because you're like, well, that's the best I got 10 points. And you told me I could get 60. Sorry. That's how I feel. Anyways, but that's how we treat the Holy Spirit, like this power up kind of to the Christian life. We can do it on our own, but then, you know, if we really need like a little power up, you know, then we just kind of add them into what we're already wanting to do. That's not it. Like what you're called to is absolutely impossible without the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. We need him to guide us into all truth because as he does, we begin to be healed. Like I can stand up here and I can tell you you're completely loved by the Father till I'm blue in the face and you might believe it for five minutes. You might believe it while the band's playing and it's emotional, but when you go back and you're alone, something more has to happen. That truth has to be driven in your bones by the Holy Spirit or else I'm just wasting my breath. And again, like God uses us to speak truth into each other, but we need the spirit to do this. I can give you biblical principles all day, how to live your life. Those aren't bad. However, if the spirit doesn't transform my heart to believe that those commands are actually good and not grievous, then my words are just meaningless. We need the spirit of God. But here's the good news. The spirit is freely given because of the work of Christ. This isn't something you could earn even if you wanted to. In verse seven, Jesus said that the spirit would not come to them unless he went away. What is he getting after? See, before the very spirit of God could indwell the followers of Jesus, they needed to be made worthy to be the temple of divinity. There are none of us who on our own are worthy of being indwelt by the divine Holy Spirit. That's what the whole temple and tabernacle in the Old Testament is showing. I mean, you have this holy of holies and all these rituals that had like the holiness of God. Like we actually under the new covenant in Christ become the very temples, the ones who bear the presence of God. And we are not worthy of that on our own. We are not worthy of being used on mission in the world. You'll mess it up. I'll mess it up. But Jesus, full of grace and truth, lived the perfect life we could not on our behalf. Perfectly surrendered to the spirit. He was the chief cornerstone upon which all of us become, as 1 Peter tells us, 2 Peter, I think, living stones that are indwelt by the spirit because of his work. And when he died on the cross, he beat death and sin and he exposed the powers of darkness. We're told he judged the ruler of the world. He embarrassed the cosmic powers of darkness for all to see and he shows us and convicts us of true justice and judgment. And he rose again from the grave and what does he do? He accomplishes righteousness. He becomes sin for us who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness. God. What do we have to do? 
Simply believe and we receive his perfection. We become his holiness. This is how the spirit of God indwells in us and our bodies through Christ become vessels that are used to display the spirit. And as I said, just like those, the presence of God when it indwelt the tabernacle of the old covenant, we are the new tabernacle. The word of God is not written on tablets of stone, but on our hearts by the work of Jesus. And we are continually guided into actual belief of these truths by the spirit, where it changes us. The spirit of truth guides us into all truth, namely the truth, Jesus himself. And as this happens, as this changes us, we become to the world what Jesus was, a living and breathing incarnate testimony to the power of God. Just like Jesus was sent, Jesus said, as my father has sent me, so send I you. And then he breathes on them the spirit and we go bear witness to the power of the gospel. As we become healed by the spirit speaking truth to us, we are transformed more fully into Christ's image. We are then used by the spirit to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Not in our own strength, not declaring our own righteousness. Because if you've really been made righteous, like you know it wasn't you. We just proclaim Jesus. And so my heart for us as New Eden is that we wouldn't set the spirit on the back burner because we're a little scared, but that we would be hyper aware of the spirit's presence among us. Can the work of the spirit be sensationalized and manipulated to control people? Yes, but I will say this plainly. You cannot be too aware of the spirit's actual presence in your life. You can't. So I pray that we would make space to hear the truths that he speaks over us, both the comforting truths and the convicting truths. And that as this happens, we would invite the world in to trust and believe in the good news of Jesus so that they might believe this same spirit of the living God that indwells each of us.